You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back friend of the podcast, Andrew Huronich, who I consider to be the most able, young, scholarly proponent of a distinctively Christian vision of a God who saves all and restores all of creation. With an undergraduate degree from Liberty University and underway on a master's in theology from Princeton Theological Seminary, Andrew was already able to articulate and defend his position with a competence far beyond his years. His new book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis, is set to be shortly released by Whitfenstock Publishers, and this book will immediately take its place as a must-have for anyone who wants to seriously engage the formidable power and coherence of a Christian universalist perspective in which grace saves all. Welcome again, Andrew, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you for having me, David. Andrew, your book does a great job of jumping right into the logic of Christian universalism, specifically in relationship to uh, foreknowledge and open theism and Molinism. But before we get into that, let's review your history a bit. You grew up in the heart of the evangelical church and sincerely believed that a hell of eternal conscious torment awaited all non-believers. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a household of seven rambunctious children, so you would think the fear of hell would have been forced down our throats at a young age to beat the (laughs) devil out of us. (laughs) But fortunately, my parents took a quite different approach. We grew up listening to Adventures in Odyssey, watching the Story Keepers and Nest Bible films, so that from a young age, I wanted to know Jesus for Jesus' sake. I was utterly captivated by the scriptures, memorizing entire chapters 50 verses long by the time I was eight. As far as I can recall, hell played little to no part in arousing my love for Jesus, but it did make me fear and mistrust him when I first heard of it. From the first time I heard of hell, I was petrified of the concept and my testimony, as we call it in evangelical circles, Mm -hmm. in the years leading up to my teenage years was that I was a Christian because I didn't want to go to hell. It was as plain as that. In fact, I remember one night as part of a young men's Bible study hosted by a friend of mine sharing with the group of teenagers and adult missionaries that I didn't want to go to hell, and that's why I was a Christian. I distinctly remember a round of applause encouraging my testimony, but looking back, I often wonder what I would have told my younger self knowing what I know now in regards to my motivations for my faith. About a year or so later, my parents moved our family to North Carolina where the preacher who showed more kindness to a rascal like me than I deserved was often prone to speak of hellfire. It later came to light that this was one of the reasons for one of my older sisters becoming disenfranchised with the faith, while it's nearly bringing my oldest sister to apostasy. I must confess that after that pastor moved on to preach elsewhere, while I missed his fervent spirit, I did not miss his hellfire sermons. While I cannot be sure, perhaps the genesis of my deconstruction of the traditional doctrine of hell, started at a Barnes & Noble bookshop where my eyes latched onto the beautiful cover of a book simply titled Heaven and Hell by a fellow named Bart Ehrman. (laughs) Having grown up in fundagelical circles where John MacArthur and Ken Ham reigned supreme, Mm -hmm. I had no idea who the author was, though he and I are now amicable acquaintance sharing mutual friends in the form of colleagues and former students of his who I grew up with. 
That book in particular was my first introduction to critical scholarship in general. I began reading about the Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Thecla, and other apocryphal and pseudepigraphal New Testament texts, as well as biblical texts addressing the subject at hand. Unfamiliar with critical scholarship in general, I was not persuaded by Dr. Ehrman's overall case, though he had sparked my attention. I went on to immediately purchase 12 of his books that summer, and now I'm sure I've read more of Bart Ehrman than any of my fellow seminarians. <laughs> yeah, I would guess so. <laughs> well, my, 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 well just, just let me say a little bit about Bart Ehrman, is that he grew up in fundamentalism in a very strict uh, kind of idea where every single you know word in the Bible is verbally inspired. And when he got into uh, the, you know, the master's and PhD level work, he realized that that didn't, that that didn't hold up. And that, that really spawned kind of decon deconstruct deconstructing him almost all, well, it seems like all just about to an agnostic position. He says at the end of it, at the end of that book that you're talking about that he, that he, that the, he, that that Christian universalist perspective appeals to him, but that he's really not sure that there's anything that happens after we yes. die. So Bart's actually a, a graduate of the seminary that I currently attend. So um, he's seen here both as a hero and as the bad boy gone rogue. Right. Well, mm -hmm. I remember one time talking to Bart actually about my book and about his book. And I asked him what he thought of Christian universalism because he had written a book called God's problem about the problem of evil uh, within the text of scripture. And so I asked him, uh, if he thought that universalism might alleviate the problem to some degree. And he was actually very uh, kind to the Christian universalist view and said that it was much needed in order to rectify this so-called problem of evil. So uh, Bart has been very gracious to me. Um, he's a very charitable individual, which you might not gather if you just watch YouTube. <laughs> but it, in any case, uh, mm -hmm. returning to my story. So it was while I was at Liberty University, or as I call it, Fundagelical Disneyland, that my, okay. antipathies, my antipathies for the traditional doctrine of hell began to mature. The new atheists had shaken me a bit a few months prior, and though I attempted to drown them out with Alistair McGrath, Paul Copan, John Lennox, and others, I began to have severe misgivings about the God proclaimed at the center of Christianity. These doubts came to full fruition in my senior and junior years at Liberty, it all began when I watched a film documentary called The American Gospel. It should have been more aptly titled The Calvinist Gospel, even though it featured notables, uh, notable non-Calvinists such as Mike Winger, for the reformed undertones to the film were evident seeping through every segment. Ironically, several of the folks slandered by the film are now precious friends of mine, but that was not the case when I first saw the film. It was either um, in watching the first or the second film that I was introduced to the malicious, God-hating Rob Bell and his demonic <laughs> propaganda in the form of Love Wins. Given that the American Gospel was a well-known documentary at Liberty University, I remember one of my close friends at the time who wouldn't watch movies uh, engaging in a conversation at Bible study with some folks on film and telling them, my favorite movie is the American Gospel. <laughs> However, unlike my peers, I was often deemed the naughty one because I like to venture off script and explore what the other side had to say. I remember when word got around at the university that I was reading Bart Ehrman. How dare I? People began whispering behind my back that it was only a matter of time before I apostatized. You could only imagine my chagrin when next semester, all these folks were assigned Bart Ehrman in their respective classes for reading. <laughs> oh, really? That, that's interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine Bart Ehrman would be assigned at Liberty University. 
Oh yeah, well he was assigned so they could shred him to pieces and trample on him, you know. <laughs> but I was just ahead of the learning curve there. In any case, always prone to venture off the beaten trail, I decided to do the one thing folks who watched the American Gospel were not allowed to do, as my friends at Liberty told me. I decided to read Rob Bell for myself. Reading Bell reminded me of reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It seemed evident that Bell was hedging his bets, but he was not a full-blown universalist. In the end, I found some of his stuff interesting, but nothing life-changing. It was only when I watched the second film for the American Gospel that deconstruction began to fester beneath the surface of my theological house. It was in this film that the contributors targeted one of my spiritual heroes from youth, a champion of the faith called Origin of Alexandria. You see, at around 12 years of age, my parents enrolled me in a classical institution founded by the renowned Presbyterian theologian Peter Lightheart, whose son was my first professor at the institution. At age 12, I was introduced to Dante, Chaucer, St. Benedict, Athanasius, Augustine, Suetonius, Heraclitus, and many other figures of the past in the form of their primary works, not secondary commentaries, no less. The first book I ever read for Omnibus, as the curriculum was called, was by Eusebius of Caesarea, entitled The Ecclesiastical History. I fell in love with the history of the early church and its heroes, but there was one who stood head and shoulders above the rest, one Eusebius not so subtly shown the spotlight on, Origen. Right, yeah, well, that have, was that was uh, that was important for Eusebius because he thought that the that the memory of, of Origen was very critical to the history of the mm-hmm. history of the church. Yeah, if you read Origen's ecclesiastical history, he spends more time on Origen than any other early church. I mean, if you read uh, Eusebius, if you read Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, he spends more time on Origen than anybody else. Than any of the other early church theologians. That's right. So yeah. um, it, it's clearly who he thought was the greatest of the early ones. Well, when the American gospel condemned Origen as a heretic for his belief in apocatastasis, I was stunned. How could someone like Origen believe something so obviously false? Apparently, he was in good company, for perhaps the most beloved professor of theology at Liberty University would often tell the class with tears that he was at a loss for words why his patristic heroes were so often universalists themselves. The reason for his tears? Well, they were wrong after all. Weren't they? Soon after, I found myself at the epicenter of a raging debate amongst my peers at Liberty as to the most impenetrable mystery of theology. No, it's not who Cain's wife was or whether Adam had a belly button, but what on earth the book of Revelation meant by the millennium. Several of my more dogmatic friends were convinced that non-premillennials were barely saved through a happy inconsistency in their beliefs, but I was far more doubtful. Though I grew up in dispensationalism, I never much cared for it. I was unimpressed with Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, though he donated $50 million to Liberty, for which I am truly grateful since I've used his gym for the past three years while at Liberty. <laughs> at the same time, I noticed a pessimism operating amongst some of my premillennial friends who were convinced that vast majority of folks would be damned, and this was a good indication that something like the post-mill view was Pollyannish. Sticking up for the post-mill view one day, I told one of my closest friends that if God purposed to bring forth a golden age of mass conversion at the end of history, who was to say he couldn't? In response, I kid you not, my friend retorted, but that's exactly what universalists say. The hidden premise to my friend's counter was, and they're obviously wrong. But hearing that response stunned me, unlike anything I had experienced before or after. What if the universalist was right? Why such lack of confidence in the ultimate persuasive providence of God? I didn't have a very good answer and decided to chew more on this conundrum. 
Everything finally came together for me when I started wondering about the fate of the unevangelized in my spare time. It seemed patently unloving not to give them an opportunity to respond to the gospel invitation, especially if God wanted all to be saved, and if he could do so by means which didn't necessarily violate free will, such as by means of angelic messengers or visions or opportunities at the moment of death. I had several well-meaning folks attempt to offer reasons as to why it was not unloving for God not to provide such opportunities, but they were really only parroting John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. It just didn't make sense to me, and that is when I found it. I'm not sure how I came across it, whether it's intentional or unintentional, but one day at the Jerry Falwell Library, I discovered an ebook titled The Inescapable Love of God. I felt like Harry Potter in the restricting section at Hogwarts, <laughs> for, for books such as these were surely off limits to Liberty students. Nevertheless, I decided to give the book a hearing, and I'm glad I did. Few books I can say have radically changed the course of my life. Jesus Interrupted by Bart Ehrman was one, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul was another, and The Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot was a third. Although I was taking 21 credits in order to finish my four minors and my bachelor's of science religious studies on time, I decided to undertake an extensive study of the doctrine of hell, a study which has been unparalleled in the course of my life, astounding theologians like Gregory Boyd and Thomas Talbot himself in his death. Now, um, yeah, so I think that's uh, that's basically um, how it was that I first introduced to Christian universalism. But then I always tell people that before I was a convinced universalist, I was a praying one. It was reading Jan Bonda's book that made me think I could be that man in the gap. I could, like Moses and Paul, purposely intercede for the fate of all living beings, and maybe, just maybe, God would hear my plea as he heard the plea of Moses and Paul. Yeah, I think I that, 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 you know, that, let me know if I can just say, that's a interesting theme in the um, in the Bible, is that, that the faithful pleading with God to to do the right thing, essentially, to say, listen, you're, you know, you're better than this. And if you just, like what Moses was saying, if you just lead us all out here and and kill us all, uh, people are going to, you know, say you're not, you, you, know, you know, you never were good. You never were a good God. So let's do something. Sh- shouldn't, shouldn't you do something better than that? And so in a way, I, I, I wonder if God maybe doesn't expect us to, to want him to be as good as we can imagine him to be. Hmm. No, yeah, I mean, those parallels are there in, in Scripture. I remember uh, thinking it through Moses, who he, he interceded for God. He said, blot me out of your book of life. It, it means that you will avert your wrath in this nation. Or you get the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11. He says that, you know, I wish that I could be anathema if it meant the salvation of my brethren. What's interesting is that in both cases where these individuals did this, God granted the request. And so I thought, well, what if I did this, right? What if I was the man that gap? And, and sure enough, in Ezekiel, uh, there's one point where God asked the prophet, is there anyone willing to stand in the gap anymore? Is there anyone in this nation who will stand in the gap like Moses did? And, and there was nobody. And so I thought, well, what if that's the same now? What if I can be that person to stand in the gap? And so before I was ever a convinced universalist, I was a praying one. Now, I had yet for some time to work around questions such as the parallelism of Ionian in Matthew 25, 46, the nature of the unpardonable sin, and the proper understanding of eternal destruction in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, and a host of others. Mm-hmm. Yet in due time, not only did I find those answers, but I also began pioneering avenues in Christian universalism that I hitherto found undiscovered in my research. 
Moreover, in the time leading up to my eventual acceptance of Christian universalism, I became a much more agreeable person. I'm afraid my years as a dogmatic Calvinist with fundagelical upbringing taught me to write off anyone who disagreed with my theological views as a heretic. But being open to the possibility I might be wrong on hell allowed me to be more gracious towards those who might have a different view than me on other matters. I am all the better for it. I now find that in evangelizing, I don't have to get someone to repeat the Romans road and a short prayer of confession back to me in five minutes time. Mm -hmm. Instead, I can engage with them in normal conversation with issues regarding my faith naturally arising as opposed to arising in a manufactured sense. I'm not going to make false promises to the extent that embracing Christian universalism will remove all doubts. It certainly won't, but it does give reason to hope, and oftentimes hope proves more formidable than doubt. I can't tell you how many times now I've talked to atheists who say that if they were to become a Christian, they would have to be Christian universalists, for that is the vision that most draws them heavenward. In the end, once I did become convinced of Christian universalism, I remember beseeching God the joy and wonder I first experienced in contemplating the mere possibility of such a glorious future would not be lost on me. I prayed there would ever be in my heart that I might not take it for granted, but that I might ever see it, and by doing so, ever see God and my neighbor for who they are. Well, that you know that that is that's a moment for all of us who have embraced the larger hope, um, as sometimes it's called. That moment when you first when you first really see it clearly and you look at all the pros and cons and you decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try this on. I'm going to, I'm going to believe this and I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to see how it plays out. And for me, it was kind of like a, like a little spiritual explosion for me. It like, it changed the way I saw the world. It changed the way I saw other people. Um, there were, when I read the Bible, I was seeing different passages leap out to me that had never leapt out that way before. And I just, everything kind of came together in my theology. Everything just, I told somebody one time, it was kind of like if you're looking through a telescope and it's a little bit fuzzy, you can see what you're looking at. But once you're able to really get it focused in and see, and then once the detail really comes in and the, you see all the detail, it's just, you know, amazing and overwhelming. And that's kind of what the experience was like for me. And so I just got so excited about it. I wanted to help other people to be able to see it because I knew how inspiring and healing it could be. Yeah. And uh, you remind me, I mean, a more, on a more practical note, as a youngster, when I was first heard about uh, the doctrine of fellows traditionally taught, I didn't want to have children. I remember for years, it wasn't just a statement, it was reality in my life, is I didn't want to have kids. I, because I couldn't imagine bringing someone into a, the world where they, mm -hmm. there's a large chance, according to many uh, evangelical people who I was brought up around, that my child will be damned and tormented eternally. I couldn't imagine doing that. And so Christian universalism just made me jubilant in regards to children because I realized that every person brought into the world will ultimately be able to experience eternal life and supremely worthwhile happiness. And so in essence, I was thinking the more the merrier. I mean, I come from a family of seven kids, so yeah. <laughs> the more the merrier. Yeah. All right. Well, I really enjoyed the way that you got started out in your book. And it's hard to know when you're, when you're going to be tackling a subject as huge as Christian universalism, 
it's hard to know exactly, you know, where to start. And I was really impressed with the way that you you began with just um, an examin- an examination of divine foreknowledge. And you assigned the term simple foreknowledge to what is the common traditional understanding of God's foreknowledge. So what is God's simple foreknowledge and what is so theologically important about it? Sure, yeah. Thank you for the question. So I would say that the traditional understanding of divine foreknowledge is the assertion that God infallibly knows the future. Those who affirm this notion immediately fall under the charge. If God infallibly knows the future, then why did he create people he knew would choose eternal misery over eternal bliss? Wouldn't it have been better never to have created them at all? John Stuart Mill framed the objection in these terms, quote, Think, he used to say, of a being who would make a hell who would create the human race with the infallible foreknowledge and therefore with the intention that the great majority of them were to be consigned to horrible and everlasting torment, end quote. In response to Mill's objection, Jerry Walls posits the principle of double effect, which states that, quote, if an agent performs some action for the sake of sufficiently important good, and if bad secondary effects are unavoidably entailed by the action, the agent is not blameworthy for those effects if he does not intend them, end quote. To put it modestly, simply because God foresees the fall of some or many does not mean that he intends this to be the case on the double effect principle. It may be that the damnation of the few or many is the unavoidable secondary effect of God's actualization of a sufficiently important good. Contra Walls, David Bentley Hart contends that the distinctions between will and permission suffer a moral modal collapse at the eschatological horizon of God's creative will. He says, quote, All the possibilities to which an agent knowingly consents are things he or she has willed directly as intrinsic conditions of the end achieved. One can't positively will the whole without positively willing all the necessary parts, even if those parts are only possibilities, end quote. If the infernalist view is correct, then God has willed, as part of the pattern of the whole, either eternal suffering or its possibility. Furthermore, God cannot not have positively willed such an outcome if, in the pattern of the whole, it exists either as a real or stochastic possibility, quote, you cannot will the whole positively without positively willing all the parts of the whole, either as actualities or as possibilities, and proleptically what you're willing to sacrifice to achieve an end is a sacrifice morally you have absolutely made, end quote. It is only in the totality of creation's final form that God's creative intention and the complete valuation of what he was willing to sacrifice in order to bring these intentions to pass can be realized. Here, at the final horizon, one fails to distinguish between natural and moral evils so long as any natural evil translates into the final actualized pattern of creation as God intends it. Quote, because even to allow for the mere possibility of an ultimately unredeemed natural evil in creation means that in the very act of creation, God deemed this reality to be an acceptable price for the ends he desired, and thereby, morally speaking, has willed it positively. Well, in other I, words... I, I've, thought, I've thought before, it's kind of like... Uh, Let's let's suppose we're all there in heaven, and the very last, you know, sinner comes across the line, and God says, Whew, "I didn't know if I didn't know if he was going to make it or not." And we're we're like, "Wait a second! What do you mean you didn't? You didn't know that was going to happen, didn't you know the?" In, in from the beginning, he said, "Well, I, you know, I was pretty I was pretty sure you know this was going to happen, but not you know not ultimately sure." Well, even if that person does, you know, go across the line, I think we're left scratching our heads a little bit like, 
I mean, you didn't know what you were, you didn't know the risk. You didn't know the risk you were exposing us to when you brought us into this creation. Yeah, David still my thunder by trying to jump to open theism right away. <laughs> but uh, but no, it, it's a fair question because this has been an objection that's not just been raised by John Stuart Mill, but it was also raised by Charles Darwin and Bertrand Russell and many others is, if God did infallibly know that people will be uh, damned, then why on earth did he create them? So what I'm proposing, in other words, is that uh, the question is just basically this simple question. How is an accidental effect not indeed an essential reality based upon the terms of the bargain God made with his own moral nature and creation? And how is that true coherently with creation ex nihilo and God's ultimate intentions in creation without reducing the goodness in creation only to a relative good and thus also a relative evil? In the end, the traditionalist view of hell coupled with the simple foreknowledge view, morally speaking, is entirely reliant upon the double, uh, the principle of double effect. But given that God cannot will the whole without willing the necessary parts, the principle fails to accommodate the traditionalists with their necessary shelter. And so as we're going to see, with the ceiling beginning to crumble, it is not uncommon for traditionalists to look to Molinism for deliverance. In fact, yeah, well, there's our, a, that's a definite, I mean, this is a devastating critique of, mm-hmm. and, and I don't see a way, I don't see a way around it. Like you're saying, the double effect reason doesn't work. Whatever whatever it is that finally occurs at the end of creation turns out to be the revelation of the moral character of God. And you you just can't get you can't get around that. Uh, and I think well I'm really I'm really happy that David Bentley Hart had the stature and the ability to really make that argument in a way that it now has been made that I think is irrefutable and so people are having to find some other way. Mm-hmm. of uh, protecting the goodness of God. Yeah, I think that um, this objection can sometimes be missed. Like I saw recently uh, one traditionalist who misunderstood the objection that was being raised. And he says, well, but this objection sounds like it's premised on middle knowledge, and I don't think that God has middle knowledge. But that's not what the, this argument is saying. What this argument is saying is that according to this version of the traditionalist simple foreknowledge view, God has accepted, as per the essential conditions of creation, the possibility that it could be, it could very well be that somebody could be damned eternally, right? Now, why on earth would God accept that mm-hmm. as a possibility? I mean, he well, designed uh, rational creatures. He could design it such that this possibility didn't exist, but God well, accepted and I, and, this as a possibility. And, and not just as a, well, possibility, but Isaiah 46.10 says, you know, God knows the end from the beginning. So if it if it turns out that someone is finally not saved, that wasn't just a possibility that it might happen. That was the, that was known from the beginning. Though, yes, the uh, the possibility exists so far in the conditions of God's creation, and so on the simple uh, foreknowledge traditionalist view, um, God accepted the possibility of somebody being damned eternally when He could have created creatures otherwise. So kind of like it's called the rigging objection where God could have rigged it, right? So so why didn't God make it in such a way that it could be rigged? Is is essentially where the objection can go. Okay, so uh, there's a problem that people face if uh, they say, okay, well, God is all-knowing, and so God knows the end from the beginning. So if it turn- so if that's the case, then you have to ask the question, why would God make a creation knowing that the people that would be coming into this would inevitably go into a state of unending despair or doom 
or something mm-hmm. like that. And if God knew that that was going to happen from the beginning, then why why embark on creation? And if God does that, then how can God be completely good? And that's a really, really that's a really, really good question. One way that people try to get around that is through something called Molinism, which you did a really good job addressing in your book. And so talk about that, uh, middle knowledge or Molinism. Sure, yeah. So uh, Molinism derives its systematics from its namesake, Luis de Molina, who in dealing with the Dominicans conceptualized God's middle knowledge, which he defined as that knowledge, quote, by which in virtue of the most profound and inscrutable comprehension of each faculty of free choice, he saw in his own essence what each such faculty would do with its innate freedom, were it to be placed in this or in that, or indeed in infinitely many orders of things, even though it would really be able, if it so will, to do the opposite, end quote. Middle knowledge is referred to as such because it logically occurs between God's natural knowledge, which is his knowledge of necessary truths made known to him prior to his decision to create, and God's free knowledge, which is God's knowledge of which contingent states of affairs will actually obtain and which will not, which is made known to him consequent to his decision to create uh, decree of creation. Middle knowledge is likened to natural and free knowledge in that like natural knowledge, it is known prior to his decision to create, and like free knowledge, it consists of metaphysically contingent truths. These truths primarily consist of creaturely counterfactuals, which are truth propositions regarding what a libertarianly free creature would do in any given circumstance. The range of God's middle knowledge is infinite, with him knowing what created persons would do in varied circumstances. But setting aside the question of whether or not middle knowledge is even tenable, it is curious that Molinus will often argue that of all the feasible worlds God could have actualized, our world possessed the optimal balance between the saved and the damned. We could call this the... um, most feasible, the greatest feasible world possible to God. Such a claim intuitively seems false, leading Molinus to make extraordinary claims to support their absurd conclusions. The obvious response would be to claim that God knows by means of his middle knowledge of feasible worlds where no individuals are damned, but all freely choose communion with God, feasible worlds that God can in fact actualize. In fact, I have a book here on my desk called Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God, uh, by Oxford University Press, where Manus says that Molinism and Universalism is a match made in heaven. <laughs> but furthermore, given that God desires all men to be saved, what is to prevent God from actualizing one of these worlds over against the world of optimal balance? In response, Dr. William Lane Craig, the most prominent contemporary Molinist, has claimed that while it is logically possible for God to actualize worlds in which all are saved, such worlds may not be feasible. Quote, for God's ability to actualize worlds containing free creatures will be limited by which counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are true in the moment logically prior to the divine decree, end quote. There may therefore be an infinite number of logically possible worlds God knows by means of his natural knowledge, which due to the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, quote, are not realizable, uh, realizable by him because the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, which must be true in order for him to weakly actualize such worlds, are in fact false, end quote. God's middle knowledge thereby acts to delimit the range of logically possible worlds to those which are feasible for him to actualize. In his denial of Suarez's view of congruism, Craig goes on to intuit that it may be the case that there is no feasible world for God to actualize where S exists, person S exists, and is saved. Why? Because it may be that, quote, for some individual person S, there are no circumstances under which S would freely receive Christ, end quote. On the other hand, even if such worlds where all are saved are in fact feasible, 
Craig retorts, quote, Is it not at least possible that such a world is less preferable to God than a world in which great multitudes come to experience his salvation and a few are damned because they freely reject Christ, end quote? In other words, need we assume that God prefers any universalist world to any non-universalist world? I will examine this postulation later in detail in my book, which I would direct readers to. But for the sake of time, um, I want to point out that in the same article where Craig makes this statement, he also says, quote, If we take scripture seriously, we must admit that the vast majority of persons in the world are condemned and will be forever lost. Notice that the vast majority, if we take scripture seriously. Thus, the better question for Craig to ask would be, quote, is it not at least possible that such a world is less preferable to God than a world in which great multitudes come to experience his salvation and massively greater multitudes are damned because they freely reject Christ? I believe the answer to the second question is a resounding no. At this point, one wonders if on Craig's account, God is involved in a numbers game. Why would he prefer a world in which the vast majority are damned and only a fraction save? to one where none are damned at all. Craig suggests that perhaps those who are damned in this world suffer from what he calls trans-world damnation, a subset of trans-circumstantial damnation, that is, quote, a contingent property possessed by an individual essence if the exemplification of that essence would, if offered salvation, freely reject God's grace and be lost no matter what freedom-permitting circumstances God should create him in, end quote. If one is thus trans-circumstantially damned, then one is also trans-worldly damned, meaning that an individual would spurn God's grace in any world that God could actualize, or any feasible world. In other words, as Craig says, some people, no matter how much the Spirit of God worked on their hearts, no matter how favorable their upbringing, no matter how many times or ways they heard the gospel, would still refuse to bow the knee and give their life to Christ, end quote. If this is so... Quote, then God cannot create a world in which such persons freely receive Christ and are saved. Only if God coerced them would they believe in Christ. Hence, God cannot be blamed for creating a world in which such people are lost. Now, what possible reason could God have for creating such individuals? Individuals that God knows and uh, infallibly knows will be damned. Individuals who suffer from trans-world uh, damnation. Craig posits that perhaps it is the case that some individuals that would accept Christ only in a world where others would reject him. Thus, in order to fill heaven, it may be that God must also allow hell to be filled. I kid you not, <laughs> this is how Craig has put it. It is possible that the terrible price of filling heaven is also filling hell, and that in any other possible world which was feasible for God, the balance between saved and lost was worse. It is possible that God had actualized a world in which there are less persons in hell, there would also have been less persons in heaven. It is possible that in order to achieve this much blessedness, God was forced to accept this much loss. Now, not too convincing, is it, David? But so, so no. what are some of the no. um, what are some of the objections that uh, we might raise against Craig? Well, I have um, eight pages of exceptions actually in my book, but I'll just mm -hmm. give you a few reasons why I think this is um, dubious. So Jerry Walls, for example, has identified the intuitive dubiousness of Craig's argument for transworld damnation in light of the experience of Christian missionaries. Quote, consider some of the places in the world where Christianity is flourishing today, such as Korea and sub-Saharan Africa, places where Christian witness was relatively minimal, if it existed at all in earlier generations. 
is it really plausible at all to think none of the forebears of these contemporary Korean and African Christians would have accepted the gospel if they heard it? Surely it strains credulity to the breaking point to think none of them would have. Indeed, it seems more likely that many persons would have responded positively, just as they have in our day, end quote. Additionally, in light of transworld damnation, if there are people in Kenya who have not yet heard the gospel, why bother going to Kenya? For if they die without having heard the gospel, it would only be a sign that they were numbered amongst those who suffer from transworld damnation, and thus they would never have accepted the gospel anyway. Charles Seymour, in defense of William Lane Craig, writes, quote, It is epistemically possible, as Craig says, that God can only arrange a world with a sizable number saved if he creates some souls who are damned as well, unquote. I have to ask, though, epistemically possible for whom? If Seymour means merely to posit his own intuitions on the matter, he must acknowledge that what he deems epistemically possible may not correlate to what others, perhaps even the majority, deem as epistemically possible. There is also the concern that Craig does not sufficiently grapple with the conundrum of divine hiddenness. It is possible, some argue, that individuals could freely and yet justifiably, and thus inculpably, reject Christianity for intellectual or evidential reasons. Craig must demonstrate not only that a person suffering from transworld damnation would freely reject Christ as stipulated by transworld damnation, but that rejecting Christ in all cases produces culpability, even in the case of an illogical, nonsensical presentation of Christianity to an individual. If, on the other hand, quote, the case can be made that it is reasonable for a fully informed person to reject the Christian message, then we can plausibly conclude that there are at least some inculpable non-Christians, end quote. If culpability implies freely and knowingly rejecting the truth, many Christian philosophers, contra Craig, will argue that such is not an apt description of numerous Muslims today who believe Islam to be a more reliable system of belief. Should such be the case, then Craig's theodicy possesses a gap in his reasoning that must be filled. And finally, this is the last objection that I'll offer. Uh, you'll just have to read the book for the others. As Stephen Kirshner has indicated, Craig's notion of transworld damnation seemingly undermines the reality that the transworldly damned are free and responsible in every world. Kirshner suggests that such people, quote, cannot be damned in every world in which they exist, since this would be true only if their rejection of God's grace followed from their essential nature. And this would so greatly restrict their act options as to undermine their responsibility for rejecting God's grace, end quote. In other words, certainty regarding an individual's possession of the trait of transworld damnation would depend upon determining factors within the individual, thereby undercutting Craig's free will defense. Um, I'll add this last note. This, this isn't in my notes, but uh, it is in my book, is that Craig tries to weasel around biblical evidence that also goes against his notion of transworld damnation in the form of woes Jesus pronounces on Bethsaida and Chorazone. Jesus says that if the miracles he had performed in certain towns in Judea had been performed in these regions, they would have repented. Mm -hmm. So Jesus knew of feasible worlds in which people who were circumstantially lost in this world would have been saved. That alone is enough to refute Craig's whole theodicy. But I'll just leave it to people to further examine in my book. Well, if, if God is light in whom there is no darkness at all, and if God knows the end from the beginning— and if God, uh, in love, wants all of his children to be able to experience his love, well, then you have to ask the question, even in middle knowledge, why would God create a world 
if God knows it will result in people getting themselves into unrecoverable situations, even if God only allows but does not directly determine the situations to arise, which will result in the permanent loss of some, many, or most of them. So middle knowledge, in in middle knowledge, God still knows the end from the beginning, uh, but we're just positing that there might be some inscrutable reasons that God uh, would not be able to bring about the salvation of all, and so this is the best that God can do, um, which seems to me uh, like an unsatisfactory, still an unsatisfactory solution, because God still knows the end from the beginning. And I think because of this, this is why people uh, might be um, more inclined to move towards the position of open theism. And you really do a good job addressing that in the book, and maybe we can go on to that one now. Sure, yeah. Okay. We'll talk about open theism. Well, um, as you have just uh, indicated, David, while Molinism is growing in appeal amongst Christian philosophers, a great many biblical theologians are presently moving towards a more unorthodox conception of God's foreknowledge, that being the open view or the open theist view. There are three basic variants of open theism. The first is that of the essentially unrestricted omniscience view, whereby God knows everything about everything in an unrestricted sense. But his knowledge of the future is open-ended, since the future itself is open-ended. The maximal knowledge view stipulates that God is the perfect knower, perfectly knows all that can be known, but not all truths can be known, such as contingent truths regarding the future. The voluntarily restricted omniscience view states that God can know everything about everything in the unrestricted sense, but he voluntarily chooses not to. Future contingent truths are among the set of truths which God declines to access. For the sake of brevity and simplicity, I will focus primarily uh, these few short comments on the essentially unrestricted omniscience view. Proponents of this view argue, quote, just as it proved necessary to understand God's being omnipotent as being able to do only that what only what in a carefully defined sense is logically possible, so we should understand God's being omniscient as knowing that all is logically possible to know compatible with his omniscience. A person S is omniscient during some period T if S knows in each subperiod within T of all logically necessary truth uh, propositions and of all logically contingent true propositions about every period before the beginning of that subperiod and of all the propositions that these entail that they are true. Why is it logically impossible for God to infallibly know future free choices of created beings? To assume he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But it's not. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist. Thus, in my view at least, there simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. So God can't foreknow the good or bad decisions of the people he creates until he creates these people and they in turn create their decisions, end quote. On open theism, therefore, the future exists only in terms of present trends and tendencies. God cannot know if certain persons will be damned until he creates them. And even after he creates them, he may know that they will not be saved, and yet they may in fact be saved. That is to say, the future is not a fixed state, and thus, given a person's current trajectory, God knows they will not be uh, they will not be saved. But if that trajectory is altered, He will know that they will be saved. 
God always knows exhaustively what the future can be, and he always knows what it will be insofar as it is completely determined by his will. Moreover, he always knows what his will will be no matter what other free agents finally decide and do. However, insofar as what he wills is alternatives for free creatures to choose between or among, God does not know which of these alternatives will come to pass. What he knows is that each agent must choose within the parameters set by his powers and circumstances. Well, if this is true, then it is absurd to claim that according to the open view of divine foreknowledge, God is ever surprised precisely because he knows exhaustively what the future can or might be. The arguments for and against open theism are extensive and complex, but they are irrelevant to the case that I am making at hand. What is relevant is that if open theism is true, God does not know infallibly that any individual will be damned, whereas according to the traditional view, he does. Jerry Walls asks us to imagine the different portrayals of the open theist and traditionalist depiction of divine foreknowledge by means of a construction project. This is the analogy he gives, quote, Suppose that in the past it has almost invariably been the case that one or more persons lost their lives during the course of the construction of such skyscrapers. If we assume the director of the project is aware of this, then he will have good reason to think it highly probable that the completion of the project will cost some persons their lives. He does not know exactly which persons will die, but he knows it is very likely that one or more of the men who work for him will die. End quote. This first example represents the open view. In contrast, Walls depicts the traditionalist view of foreknowledge or simple foreknowledge in the following terms. Now let us change the case slightly. Suppose the same skyscraper is being built, but the director of the project somehow knows with certainty exactly which man will die during the time of construction. Let us call this man Brown, and let us suppose he is the father of three small children. Let us also suppose for the sake of simplicity that if the director of the project were to disclose his information or try in any way to prevent Brown's death, the project would could not be carried out, end quote. Our t- intuitions lead us to believe the second example is more deplorable. But we have to ask why. As Wall says, quote, is there really any more reason to object to the project when the director knows who will be killed than to the project in which the director knows that some will almost surely be killed, but nothing more specific? Are not both cases equally objectionable or acceptable? Is it not merely an emotional reaction to be more concerned about a specific person, Mr. Brown, than about persons in general who will probably be killed? The unknown persons are just as real as Brown. We just do not know their names, end quote. In the end, it seems that the moral superiority of the former view over the latter is a mere fiction of the mind. Like Julius Caesar, God cries, the die is cast. He is then reduced to something of a gambler, waging with the souls of millions. I like to say that he's um, he, God didn't know when to hold them, when to fold them, when to walk away, when to run. He didn't count his money when he was sitting at the table, right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, yet morally speaking, as David Bentley Hart says, quote, A throw of the dice will never abolish the hazard, for what is hazarded has already been surrendered entirely, no matter how the dice may fall. The outcome of the aleatory venture may be intentionally indeterminate, but the wager itself is an irrevocable intentional decision, wherein every possible cost has already been accepted. The irrecuperable expenditure has been offered, even if happily it is never actually lost, and so the moral nature of the act is the same in either case. To venture the life of your child for some other end is morally already to have killed your child, even at the last moment Artemis or Heracles or the angel of the Lord should stay your hand." End quote. Open theists may attempt to minimize the force of heart's argument by insisting that while it is not logically or necessarily true that all will be saved, 
such an outcome may be overwhelmingly probable and the contrary vanishingly small. Quote, After all, God will be on the case and will have as much time as he needs, Keith Ross says. Nevertheless, there are serious moral repercussions from the open view when it comes to the doctrine of creation. Why would any good God create a world like our own with the potential for eternal misery based on a mere general foreknowledge of the future, a hunch? On the other hand, Gregory Boyd elsewhere suggests that the future is in fact partially settled, but not exhaustively. And Greg here is, of course, an open theist. He says, quote, As the author of the Choose Your Own Adventure creation, God determined the scope of what would be settled and the scope of what would remain open for each of the possible storylines comprising creation. God also decided prior to creation what his response would be to each possible event within each possible storyline, thereby determining how he would weave each possible event into his overarching plan should the possible event come to pass, end quote. If this is the case, then one could argue that not only does God know how he will respond to man's fall by sending Christ, but God also knows that the adventure book cannot end in any individual's eternal separation from him. Like a responsible parent, God has designed limits to the story and how far his creatures can wander from him. In contrast, Boyd suggests God's hands may be tied since he cannot violate free will, his irrevocable gift graciously bestowed upon humanity, whilst the free choices of creatures may lead to character solidification in opposition to God. Quote, our own experience confirms the popular ancient maxim that our choices become our habits, our habits become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. End quote. In order to demonstrate this claim, Boyd appeals to Peter's denial of Christ in the Gospels. For example, given God's perfect knowledge of the kind of character Peter had formed up to the time when he betrayed Jesus, there is little difficulty in understanding how God could have known that Peter would betray Christ when it was in his self-interest to do so. Peter was morally responsible for his cowardly decision, not because he could have chosen otherwise in that moment, but because he freely developed a kind of character that rendered it certain that he would deny Christ when it was in his self-interest to do so, end quote. Boyd goes on to say elsewhere that, quote, God knew and perfectly anticipated, as though it was the only possible outcome, that if the world proceeded exactly as it did up to the point of the Last Supper, Peter's character would be solidified to the extent that he would be the kind of person who would deny Christ in a certain situation. On the basis of this knowledge and his sovereign control as creator, God decided at some point to providentially ensure that just this situation would come about, end quote. Now, we might ask, how does God providentially ensure this outcome? Boyd suggests by arranging, quote, highly pressurized circumstances that, quote, squeezed Peter's faint-hearted character out of him three times. Here we find God intervening coercively with Peter before Peter's character was, quote, crystallized in the form of irreversible character, end quote. As Boyd sees it, this divine compatibilistic intervention of God in the life of Peter was the, quote, loving but necessarily harsh means by which Peter's character was permanently changed, end quote. Such an occasion, furthermore, quote, establishes, despite what Dr. Boyd would have us believe, that the God of open theism is willing to violate the self-determining freedom of responsible moral agents in order to bring about states of affairs that he really wants to bring about, end quote. So what should we make of this? If God is willing to interfere in man's self-determination in order to bring about a good state of affairs, then what is so inconceivable about him intervening in the affairs of every individual to keep them from crystallizing their character in opposition to him? What God did with Peter, he can surely do with any individual. Thus, even if habituated character formed in opposition to God is possible, 
God may intervene such that it never occurs. One could see this as the, quote, loving but necessarily harsh means by which those most resistant to him, being the damned, would have their character permanently changed. If God, quote, is willing to violate the self-determining freedom of responsible moral agents in order to bring about state of affairs that he really wants to bring about, end quote, what better state of affairs is there for a creature than for him to experience eternal bliss in communion with his creator? It is entirely possible, therefore, that one could hold to an open theist conception of divine foreknowledge, whereby the future is partially, but not exhaustively, settled. God allows individuals to choose their own adventure, while at the same time knowing that should human sin arise, he will send his son, and should a creature be in danger of forming a habituated character in opposition to God, he will utilize loving, but necessarily harsh means to permanently change their character. Now, there's a lot more I say in the book on the subject, but I want to let your listeners know, David, that I actually had a Zoom call with Dr. Boyd uh, a few weeks ago, actually. He wrote a wonderful endorsement for my book. He was blown away. He said it was the best book he's read on the subject. Uh, Great. That's a really uh, good compliment. Yeah. And and he said, the important thing is he said that I represented him well. He thought that my criticisms were spot on. In fact, he found many of them himself convincing. So that's always a compliment when you have people saying that, oh, you didn't misrepresent me. So, yeah, I know that it's um, it's commonplace to have people usually attack open theists, and, and it almost comes across like you can't be a universalist unless you're my type of universalist. Therefore, stop being an open theist and be my type of universalist. That is not the goal of my book. I think that you can be a universalist and be an open theist, and I hope that those who read my book would see why I think that is true. Well, uh, you know, and we've talked about open theism before, and you have a way of putting a much more positive spin on it than it, <laughs> it appears on my radar screen because, I, you know, I tend to think, well, okay, if it's truly open, then uh, God uh, doesn't know where this is all going. Uh, and so it appears to me that this makes God into kind of a mad scientist calling a creation into existence that God can neither finally control nor predict or understand. Um, in in that case, if it's truly open, it could be potentially open to absolute catastrophe. Because if it's not open to absolute catastrophe, then it's not open. Um, so it just seems to me that that open theism is a is kind of a way that that appeals to a more modern mindset where, well, it's a good thing to have free will. It's a good, good thing to have adventure. And if everything is all determined from the beginning, then what's the point? Why are we going through all of this? So I can, uh, you know, and open, open is a good word. I mean, who doesn't, you know, yeah, we want to be open. Um, and the idea of a closed theism, um, all that, well, that sounds, I don't know, uh, like there's not, there's no room for possibility or, or, or uh, creativity. So I understand the attraction to open theism, uh, but, but ultimately, I certainly hope that God knows what God is doing and where God is going. My, my dad was, a, uh, was a, an airline pilot, was a professional pilot. And when you're a pilot, you, you, can't, you don't just take off without doing a pre-flight check without knowing everything you can about the plane. And you have to also know what your destination is. You don't just take off and just fly around. You have to have a flight plan. And so it seems to me that God in creation would have a flight plan, would know from the beginning 
whether or not God had the resources to accomplish what God set out to accomplish, kind of like the parable that Jesus told about the, the king who set out to build the tower, and he, but he didn't have enough resources, so he wasn't able to finish it. You know, so uh, how, how much more would God, building a creation, know if God had the resources to do it and pull it off? Uh, and, you know, it, it talks about the, the guy that, that wasn't able to build the tower became a laughingstock. Well, I'm, I'm sure God doesn't want to become a laughingstock in relation to God's own creation. So it just seems that that there's a lot of biblical mm-hmm. reasons, a lot of biblical texts I could read and point to that talk about God knows the end from the beginning. And and so um, I appreciate your winsome ability to dialogue with open theism, um, but I have not I, I have not found it to be uh, I have not found it to be convincing. Now another way that people have tried to get around the idea that well of course God saves all of God's children. God being good. Well, one way to get around that is to just simply to say, well, but not all people are God's children. And um, this is something that you do a good job of uh, addressing in your book. And I wonder if you could talk about that some more. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this objection, I could have my book paid off of an extra to pay for my seminary tuition, right? <laughs> so, well, one of the most basic truths of Christianity is that of the universal fatherhood of God. Let's just say it straight. Such a concept has often been deemed by fundamentalist conservative Christians as the heretical teaching of modernity, when in actuality it is the persistent message of Scripture. On one hand, Christians readily acknowledge God's universal creatorhood over all creatures and things, but when it comes to his universal fatherhood, they begin to draw arbitrary distinctions. Thomas Allen notes, quote, We are told God is not the father of all men. He is only their creator. What a total misapprehension these words imply. What do we mean by paternity and obligation and the obligations it brings? The idea rests essentially on the communication of life to the child by the parent. Paternity is for us largely blind and instinctive, but creation is love, acting freely, divinely, knowing all the consequences, assuming all the responsibility involved in the very act of creating a reasonable and mortal spirit. It seems then very strange to seek to escape the consequences of the lesser obligation by admitting one still greater, to seek in a word to evade the results of a divine universal fatherhood by pleading that God is only the creator, end quote. Luke 3 sheds some light on this issue in terms of delineating the genealogy of Christ. In a rather impressive listing, Luke manages to tie Jesus' ancestry back all the way to Adam. But notice the progression in the final verse. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Yeah, I really, like that. I really like that point in your book. <laughs> I liked it too. That's why I included it. <laughs> Adam was the son of whom? God. Thus, in Adam, we are all children or descendants of God. Man is God's child, and his sin consists of continually acting as if this were not so. It was not some frantic hippie liberal who instructed the masses to view God as father. Rather, it was the very incarnate Son of God, who even says regarding the wicked, quote, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children— how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew seven eleven. To those he deemed evil, he considered God to be their Father. Elsewhere in the same gospel, Matthew records, quote, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, And call no man your Father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Matthew 23, 1 and 9. Jesus is not addressing a secret select group. Rather, he here calls on all men 
to view God as their ultimate father. Additional proof of the universal fatherhood of God can be found in the most famous of parables, the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable, at what moment did the father cease to be the father of the prodigal? Did he strike his son from the family tree and disown him as a stain on his reputation? By no means. Christ additionally implies in his warning in Mark 8.36, which says, For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That a single soul is of greater value than the earth and its fullness thereof. Quote, Jesus Christ was the first to bring the value of every human soul to light, and what he did no one could any more undo. We may take up what relation to him we will. In the history of the past, no one can refuse to recognize that it was he who raised humanity to this level. End quote. Yet from where or for, from whom do persons derive their worth? Harnack again states, quote, A man may know it or not, but a real reverence for humanity follows from the practical recognition of God as the father of us all. End quote. Jesus recognized the immeasurable worth of every person in the eyes of God their father, so much so that he would conclude, quote, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. When one turns to his neighbor, he sees not the face of a worthless creedon, but the face of Christ. Dr. Watson concludes from these passages, quote, This attempt to restrict the intention of Jesus with regard to the fatherhood of God is not of yesterday. It was the invention of the Pharisees. They detected the universal note in Jesus' teaching. They resented his unguarded charity, end quote. At this point, some may wonder, but what about believers? I thought believers were the children of God. And indeed they are. But scripture often defines childhood or sonship in different senses. Repeatedly, the Bible affirms that Israel is God's firstborn son, Exodus 4, 22 through 23. And that all Israelites are his children, Deuteronomy 14, 1, Jeremiah 31, 9, Malachi 2, 10. Additionally, the angels in heaven are also referred to as sons of God, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 38, 7. What also shall we make of the case of Christ, who is the son of God, the monogonase, in a completely different sense than any creature can be understood to be, John 3.16. From this, we gather that the description of childhood and sonship varies depending on the context. However, there is a sense in which all creation can be considered the progeny of God. Now, some may point to John 8, where Jesus says of the Jews, quote, You are of your father, the devil, which is John 8.44. There are several considerations in order. Firstly, Jesus is here speaking of a subset of a subset. He is speaking directly of those Jews of first century Palestine who sought to kill him. Not of all Jews, and certainly not of all men. The point he is trying to make is that children imitate their forebears. Thus, one is a child of the one he imitates. Are there times when believers can imitate the devil and his desires? Certainly, and in such moments they are carrying out his will as opposed to God's. And here I think immediately is Simon Peter, who Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. For he was imitating the will of Satan and not that of God. Or of, Bar or of Barnabas, who was a son of encourage encouragement. Oh, yeah, you're still, in my, you're still in my thunder here, David. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 because no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, to isolate this verse from the rest of the passage and create a theology out of it is highly irresponsible on the part of any theologian who espouses such a habit. Would they also assume, like you were saying, David, that uh, Jabal in Genesis 4, 20 through 21, who is said to be the father of all who live in tents, and Jubal, who is said to be the father of all who play the lion harp, were the literal fathers of such people. I mean, last time I checked, when I went camping, 
This had nothing to do with uh, Jabal being my father. <laughs> of course not. Rather, such language implies that these men are the pioneers of their respective fields. In the same way, Satan is not a literal father of anyone. Rather, those who do evil follow in his footsteps. The word of God is clear. We are all children of God in some sense, others in more sense than one. Why is it that theologians are so opposed to the universal fatherhood of God? I believe it is because such a concept leads directly to the notion that God's punishments should be seen as educative and geared towards restoration, not vindictive and retributive. Why does a parent spank their child? Is it because the child has personally offended the parent's honor and now the parent seeks retribution? Or is it because a parent intends to chasten their child so that their child might come to realize their wrongdoing? William Barclay wisely said, quote, If God was no more than a king or judge, then it would be possible to speak of his triumph if his enemies were agonizing in hell or were totally and completely obliterated and wiped out. But God is not only king and judge. God is father. He is indeed father more than anything else. No father could be happy while there were members of his family forever in agony. No father would count it a triumph to obliterate the disobedient members of his family. The only triumph a father can know is to have all his family back home. Yeah, I think that's important because we tend to, uh, you know, in this world, we tend, in, well, in our context, when we think of God judging, we tend to think of it like in a legal, like in a courtroom scene. Um, but really, we should think of God as um, a parent who sets things right by having all of their children back home. And I just want to run some other verses by you as, as far as the universal fatherhood of God. Uh, for instance, Acts 17, 27 to 29, uh, where this is, this is Paul speaking to a group of pagans in Athens, and he says, God is not far from any one of us. And I think that's an important thing because when I was growing up, I heard certain evangelicals say, well, God is far away from you because you're, you're sinful, and they would draw a chasm and the sin would be at the bottom of the chasm, and I'd be on the one side, and God would be holy over on the other side, and God had to be far away from me because I was sinful and God was holy. But here Paul is speaking to a group of pagans in Athens, and he says, God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So we're all together, living and moving and having our being in God, so God is the ground of being. Then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he's saying, you know, Good grief, like your poet, your own poets even know about this. Like this one is so obvious that even your own, that even your own poets. And so he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Uh, so we are, so we are supposed to begin, rightly begin our thinking about God with the understanding that God is our, um, is the one we are God's children. We are living and moving and having our being in God. That's where we begin right thinking that God is close to us. We live and move and have our being in God, and we are children of God. And then just a couple more in Ephesians, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. A beautiful passage. Then later on in Ephesians 4, 6, God refers to the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, you know, this is a father who is not far from us, who's not detached from us, 
in whom we live and have move and have our being, who is over us all and through us all and in us all. This is a, a universal, all pervasive father. Mm. No, yeah, I mean, and while we're trying to one up each other with Bible passages, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have well, a, I actually that's important because you know this comes up that it, that 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 it's not biblical that you know that no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a very important point that you're making here. You're, you're right, and uh, this is why I try to stress in my book. In fact, I had one reviewer of my book say that this was one of his favorite parts of the book, was actually when he saw these biblical passages. Like another one is Hebrews 12, 9, which says, quote, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Notice the designation it gave in Hebrews 12, 9 to God. He's called the Father of spirits. Right. Last time I checked, um, if you're a sound theologian, you believe we all have a spirit, right? Or we, mm-hmm. or some people believe we are a spirit, and said so that God is the Father of spirits, right? Now, um, another point that I make in the book, while we're still on the subject, David, I think might be helpful. Um, I write in my book these marvelous truths that Christ brought to light would later be reiterated by the Apostle Paul. See, I just gave the verses from Jesus because I think you know Jesus is great. Uh, Paul is pretty good too. So now I'll just mm-hmm. give some points from Paul. Okay, so yeah, in, continue on. In, in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul warns, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. End quote. One wonders whether the same implications could be made of God, who declares, quote, Behold, all souls are mine. Ezekiel 18.4. Now here's my question. Is God worse than an unbeliever? Does he care for his own? Our Father in heaven never disowns his children, for as Paul informs the Areopagus in Athens, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the ardent imagination of man. Part of the reason why Paul expects the Athenians to discern the divine nature is their own nature. They are God's offspring. So yeah, that's another wonderful paragraph <laughs> of the book. Well, I, uh, there's a group uh, right now that's doing a study on my book, and I'm talking with the minister that's leading the study. And he said that one of the things that really blew the group away was just simply my, my I have a five-point picture of God in my book, and one of the points is that God is a loving parent to all. And these people were just blown away by the idea that God is everybody's loving parent. And just that, if you can just get that single idea in your mind and that that is by grace, you don't do anything to become Mm -hmm. a beloved child of God. You don't have to do anything for God to be close to you. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything to be in, in God you, we are all in God, living and moving and having our being. This is all, this is all by grace that we are God's beloved children. No, yeah, and you're bringing something that's really interesting. Is I've noticed that there are certain individuals that when they go on mission trips, for example, and, and they're missionizing um, tribes, right, especially in the, the South Pacific Islands, they'll draw comparisons to God and say that God is like a father. You know, that's the, that's the analogy they give. God is like a father. But when they're talking to the universalist, God is not like a father, right? Yeah. So it, 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 it amazes. Or when the problem of evil comes up and, and you have an atheist, that's, but why, why do we suffer? Uh, many times you'll hear um, a theodicy that's called the soul building theodicy. And God is compared to a father. You know, oh, God is like a parent, right? 
but then you have to call this person out. You're like, wait, but when you're talking to the universalist, you say that God is not a father to these people, right? So there seems to be this just incongruity between the way that certain traditionalists, or I should say non-universalists, use the fatherhood of God outside of the discussion on hell and in certain other aspects of evangelism and apologetics. Well, I think kind of what's happening right now, we can kind of wrap this up, and, uh, and I hope we'll do another uh, another episode on uh, some some of the more topics that you talk talk about in your book, but it just occurs to me that, um, like you're saying, the philosophical uh, argument for universalism is so incredibly persuasive, and then when you add onto it that it makes as good a biblical argument as Arminianism or Calvinism does, uh, and you understand that no no theological system gets a free pass with regard to Bible verses. Every theological system ends up with some Bible verses that it has to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the Christian universalist tradition, it has a way of gathering up all of the most beautiful passages <laughs> in the Bible, the most hopeful passages, plus it just, it has a logical coherence that is unbeatable and that's why I think this isn't going anywhere that mm-hmm. that and it really encourages me that young people like yourself, even who are growing up in the most conservative anti-universalist uh, settings of all, uh, you know, have uh, ha- have had your experience and are having these, you know, are having these conversations. I don't think people would be surprised to find out that students at Princeton Theological Seminary might be discussing the possibility of a Christian universalism. But they sure would be surprised to know that at Liberty University, uh, the students there are really engaged with these issues and thinking about some of these things. No, yeah. And um, actually, I have several things to say on that, um, because it was a couple of weeks ago I was talking with a friend of mine. His name is Malachi from Liberty. And he and I, when I was starting to write my book, we had some excellent conversation on this topic. And I, I think I might have sent it to you, David. He um, he had a discussion with his roommate on the topic of hell and universalism, and he decided to play devil's advocate. And uh, his roommate texted him uh, the next morning, uh, very early in the morning. And this is what he said. He said, bro, I'm thinking about universalism all the time now. Crazy stuff. Very theologically convincing. Can't say I'm a believer, but I'm definitely not not one. Now, that's really interesting. This is another student from Liberty University. And um, I guess I, I knew a bunch of people at Liberty who were sort of higher up. So I was kind of well-connected with folks, kind of outgoing, if you can't tell, David. I've got <laughs> a lot of friends. And so when I came out as a universalist, it was because I had readily established um, a trustworthy nature with a lot of folks that they were willing to hear what I had to say. Because they trusted me on other issues, they were open to hearing me out on this one. Now, I think that's really important, right? That's why David Bentley Hart is um, – is for many people, he is quite convincing. They're willing to listen to him. It's because he has defended the Christian faith in other aspects outside of this topic. And so I often encourage other universalists to be well-rounded, right? Not just on this topic, but on other topics as well. Now, if you don't mind too, David, I know that we talked about this, but could I say something or two about the rhetoric that's often involved in this uh, complex conversation? Go for it. All right. <laughs> well, so I have been thinking about this recently because David and I... Um, are involved in quite a few online conversations in different forums and uh, whatnot on this conversation of hell and universalism. And there's several things that I want to say. First of all, I want to admit that I am culpable at times for being 
uh, should I say, irreverent in how I treat my neighbor, those who differ with me on this topic. And I sincerely apologize, right? There is no excuse for that. I know certain universalists have been told to fight like hell, right? Because that's what underdogs do. But we must stop doing that, all right? The person that we are having this conversation with are our neighbor. And in many cases, they're a beloved brother and sister in Christ. And trying to attempt to win them over by stamping them in the dirt, essentially by the rhetoric that we use for them, we say that, that their God is a devil. It's not really going to convince these people. And so I would just pray that when we talk to these people, that we really ask ourselves, do we really want universalism to be true? Or do we just want to be proven right? Right. The reason why I love universalism, David, is because I love persons. Right. I'm, I'm a very outgoing person. So I love people. So that was makes me love universalism. But it is unfortunate that there are some people who just want to be right in theology. And I have had this in my own experience. I've been the victim of this. I've been the perpetrator of this many times over. And we must first and foremost keep at the forefront of this conversation the fact that this is about persons. Right? This is our love for persons. Now, I often hear universalists, uh, that it's just a repeated objection. You just don't understand so-and-so. Well, help them to understand. Right, Help them to understand. If you really want them to come to this beautiful view, don't just say you don't understand. Help them to understand. Right, Because the fault may not lie with the non-universalists. It may lie with the universalists who lack clarity. And so I, I'm praying that my book will be clear in this argument. Now, that's towards the universalist. Now, I have several things to say to the non-universalist. Um, I actually have a forthcoming paper that is tentatively titled How Non-Universalists Argue Like Atheists. Because many people who are engaged in conversation over universalism are also engaged in Christian apologetics. And so um, anybody who's engaged in Christian apologetics know that there's that online troll who will say, there's no evidence for God's existence. Mm-hmm. And then what the apologist does is he lays out inductive and deductive and abductive arguments for the existence of God. He does all that work, right? And then what do you think the online troll says? Well, he just says right back, that's no evidence for the existence of God, right? Now, this is very telling, okay? Because the Christian apologists will often say, listen, I-, I hear you, but could you show me exactly which premise it is that you reject in the argument instead of just asserting that it isn't evidence, right? Simply asserting something to be true doesn't make it so. Now, likewise, I want to say to the non-universalist, simply saying there's no evidence for universalism makes you just sound like an online troll. I mean, there are dozens of articles and books dedicated to defending the Christian universalist view. You can't just simply dismiss it and say there's no evidence. Now, you might say that's no evidence. But again, you just sound like the people who you just said, show me. Show me where I go wrong in my arguments for the existence of God. Likewise, I would encourage the non-universalists, show us which premises you reject. So Show us where we went wrong in our exegesis. Don't just assert something to be so. Demonstrate it that it is so. I think that would be very helpful in advancing the conversation. Um, another thing for um, non-universalists uh, to keep in mind is not to slander us, right? So not to bring false accusations, such as I saw one fellow who he wrote an article for Christianity Today recently where he says that basically on a Christian universalism, you're going to have uh, child molesters in heaven. Now, that is simply not true. I mean, how can you say that you've wrestled with the arguments and you come away saying that slanderous statement? That is simply false. And 
furthermore, I would say that um, that statement will still be true on that Christian's um, interpretation of hell because he believes that people like the Apostle Paul who condemned pe- may have condemned people to death, I mean, there are other Christians who did, will be in heaven themselves. So I could just say, oh, you have murderers in heaven on your view, right? So it's not really helpful. Mm-hmm. Let's be very clear about what we're saying about these things. The per- eight, let's take Hitler, for example. The Hitler who will be in heaven will be one who will loathe what he formerly did, one who will be incapable of what he formerly did, one who will come to see the value, the intrinsic value of his neighbor and of the God he spurned, and will with tears and embrace re- be reconciled to that God and that neighbor. It is wrong to say that there will be people in heaven who will be ultimately unrepentant on universalism. That is false. The second thing that I would like to say that is false is when people say, for example, that on universalism, there is no notion of justice or wrath. Now, I I hate to say, dude, this is true for some universalists, but why must folks like you and me and David Bentley Hart be lobbed in with the radicals? Why must that be so? Yeah. Well, and I haven't, I I would like to know an example. Uh, I haven't, you know, I'm pretty well versed in Christian universalism. And so far to date, I haven't seen a single publication that, you know, that uh, takes that position. You might, you might hear, you know, like somebody, somebody make a, a comment online or something that, that that's their opinion, but I haven't seen anything published in favor of Christian universalism that takes that position. Yeah, I mean, this basically comes down to the slippery slope fallacy. It comes down in different ways. So, for example, there is one book, um, I can't remember, uh, is, uh, Grace Eventually Reaches All, something like that, where the person who's arguing for universalism, he denies um, the sufficiency of Scripture. He denies biblical inerrancy. He, uh, it seems like he denies biblical inspiration. He denies the deity of Christ, right? He he's, um, turns out that he only believes that the Father is the one true God, right? And that Jesus Christ is a created being. He denies all that. And so I recently saw a review of that book, which lobbed in all universalists with this fellow. It's called The Slippery Slope Fallacy. Michael McClyman seems to do this in Devil's Redemption, is that once you start on this trail, you'll wind up a Unitarian. <laughs> well, right. well, tell that to Gregory of Nyssa in Origin, right? And so this is what I'm talking about, Slippery Slope Fallacies. Where I have read books. Um, I, I won't say the name of certain individuals because I don't know who listens to this podcast or not. But there, there are individuals, I can tell you after David, who have written books that the way that they depict the, the so-called wrath of God and justice is just frankly unbiblical. It, it's just it's very sensible for the modern ears, but it's unbiblical. And so I was thinking about this notion of God's wrath. And you might uh, remember, David, I have something in my book. Um, it's the, in the conclusion to my chapter in God's justice where I say, thank God for hell, right? Thank God for God's wrath. Now, very provocative statements, but what do I mean by them, right? So, so, so let me to explain. A God without wrath would not be a God of love. Um, as a child, right, I would love to read about dinosaurs, and I'd love to read about World War II. I mean, it was kind of seamless going from Tyrannosaurus Rex to Adolf Hitler, right? That's just kind of how it went. And so when I would read World War II, uh, there was one incident in particular that has stuck with me to this day. It's called the Rape of Nanking. I don't know if you've heard of it, but hundreds of thousands of people between the years 1937 to 1938 were killed by the Japanese soldiers, about 200 to 300,000 people, and thousands were raped. Thousands of women were raped. Mm-hmm. People were hewn to pieces, used as bayonet targets by the Japanese. Now imagine, imagine if Father God, or if this is more like a grandfather, was just sitting in their skies, you know, and saying, oh, boys will be boys. 
Would we consider that a God of love? How is that loving at all to sit there and passion? No. It's like um, there's a former nun, uh, Karen Armstrong, who said, you know, it is a wonderful thing indeed to know that uh, there is basic, there is no hell at all and that God has no wrath. Now, imagine if Adolf Hitler said that in the midst of the Holocaust. It is a wonderful thing. No. No. There indeed is a hell, right? I don't know of any universalist uh, who's a prominent contender who doesn't believe that there is a hell. There is a hell that many people are going to, right? And they do need to be warned about the wrath that is to come. I think about the rape of Nant King, for example, and there is something within me that says this needs to be shown to be wrong. Now, why do I say this? Well, because um, many philosophers looked at how different people seek to be immortal, right? How we seek to live on. And one of those ways is infamy, right? If you can't become famous, right? Fame takes a long time to achieve. It's hard work. Maybe you can become infamous, Maybe you can do something that's so horrible, we'll get your news in the papers. Mm-hmm. And so I think of uh, one occasion in particular, which was the burning of a temple in the ancient world in Ephesus, right? I think it was to Artemis or Athena. It was one of those two. And uh, the individual burned the whole temple on the ground that took <laughs> a lifetime and more to build. Now, when the authorities arrested him and they tortured him to see why it was he burned down the temple, his answer was quite interesting. He said he did this act of arson to achieve infamy so that he would live on, right? At least uh, in this lifetime. Now, the, what the authorities did was really interesting is they pronounced this uh, notion of damnation, which how they meant it was that whoever mentioned this individual's name would be put to death because they weren't going to play along with this game. They wanted to scrub out this individual's name from history. Right now, that didn't work. I mean, we actually know the individual's name, but I was thinking about this the other day, and it reminded me of Daniel twelve two, which said that there's going to be a resurrection, and there'll be some that will rise to life, and some that are going to rise to judgment, right, to condemnation, to to contempt. And yeah, I think that it says eternal, eternal life and eternal in the, in that it, passage. Yes, it says eternal, but we could quibble about what it means by eternal. Well, yeah, but <laughs> right. but I think that that's just a good example that you're you look at a passage like that and you think, oh, yes. There's a uh, there's an age of correction and judgment that some will be resurrected to, and it that that just gets into our you know the difficulty of of how we interpret uh, these words and mm-hmm. and these concepts. But go on, continue on. Yeah. So so what they're saying is that I like many universes, I believe in judgment too, right? I believe that those who perpetrate wicked crimes and think that this is how they will achieve their infamy. This is how they'll be remembered in history, right? People like Adolf Hitler, they will rise and all of heaven will say no. It will say what you did was wrong, right? You didn't recognize the value in your neighbor and you didn't recognize your value in the God that created you. It was wrong. It shall not be remembered by these people, right? It shall not be held aloft. It shall be forever condemned that wicked action. Amen. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say, when I presented this in my book, it was Greg Boyd who said to me when he was reading it, he said that that chapter actually really stuck out to me. He said, you don't take the hell out of hell, <laughs> right? He said, there's hell to pay. And that's exactly right. He's, I want people who non-traditionalists who argue who I, I saw an interview on youtube recently that said basically we don't believe in judgment we don't believe in wrath we don't believe in justice we don't believe in hell that is simply wrong just read my book read david bentley hart's book that is slanderous 
Now, we may disagree about the proportionality of justice, but there is no way you can read my book and come away saying, wow, Andrew doesn't believe in the wrath of Almighty God. I absolutely do, and I thank God for it. I thank God, thank God that Adolf Hitler is not going to waltz into heaven without being repentant and without having virtue inherent in him that allows him to love his neighbor as himself and God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank God for the wrath of God. Yeah. And when we think about uh, Adolf Hitler, well, we need to remember, you know, he was in Germany and that uh, the last book that Martin Luther wrote was The Lies of the Jews. And in that book, he was quite, he, you know, he, he advocated a lot, you know, he said a lot of things about the Jews and what should be done to them that I won't even say on this podcast. And there was a, a lot of, if you look at the root of anti-Semitism, uh, it's it was Christian anti-Semitism in medieval Europe, and it was those views that certainly you know fed into uh, what happened in the Holocaust. So you know this gets into uh, yes, what what Hitler did was amazingly evil, but we there needs to be some final judgment of history in which mm-hmm. we understand uh, all of the forces that were at work. Um, well, that doesn't alleviate individual responsibility, but we need to, I think that judgment is really important, not just so that we can have reconciliation, but so that we can have understanding because what is the point of us going through all of this, especially the suffering part, if the end result is that we can't look back on this as a great learning experience where we see and we actually learn not just as individuals, but as a human family what was what went wrong and and so we know, and we we're able to know what was wrong and 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 what was right no yeah i think that you're absolutely right that judgment does play a critical part of your and my beliefs and i just hope that others who are listening others who may be interested in this topic know that to come to christian universalism you don't have to deny the concept of judgment in fact i say that judgment is critical to universalism that it is uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John that now is the ruler of this world cast out, right? That judgment has come upon him. Uh, and I don't think that true justice can be achieved without some sort of judgment. Now, the question, of course, David, as you were hinting at is, well, what is the nature of that judgment? What yeah. is the ultimate goal? Well, even if it's restored, even if it's restorative judgment, there's every reason for me want to to want to steer clear of it. It's like somebody says to me, well, if oh my. Christian universalism is true. Why be a, you know, why not just do, you know, whatever you want to do? I said, well, because I want to avoid the judgment of God. Just because the judgment of God isn't, uh, in, I don't think it's going to be eternally, eternal torment or annihilation. I think that God is going to have to do with me kind of like, I like the story of Scrooge. God is going to have to bring me to my knees in confession if I am refusing to repent or to admit that I did wrong, that that just cannot stand. So that God is going to have to purge all of that from, mm-hmm. from creation. And when you look at the judge, a lot of the judgment passages in the Bible, that purgation or purging is one of the primary roles of judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, what you say reminds me of a conversation I had with Jerry Walls, who's a well-known Wesleyan scholar who wrote the book "The Hell: The Logic of Damnation." Right, who's well-known individual in this conversation, and we were talking. He's a Wesleyan, so we were talking about Calvinism actually in that discussion, and uh, he said that Wesleyans ought to talk more about divine providence. They ought to talk more about predestination. Right, 
They ought to. Pastors ought to. The theologians ought to. Now, of course, he meant in the Wesleyan sense, because what has happened is the term was so co-opted, predestination and providence, by Calvinists, that many Westerners were afraid to even touch the subject, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is the same with some universalists who, who might be afraid to, in their pulpits, right, to even bring up the subject of hell, right? But we believe hell is real. I mean, we ought to be warning people to a healthy extent, right? of a place such as hell, where they are headed unless they repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't allow the traditionalists to co-opt, right, this concept of hell altogether and judgment, as you said. So, yeah, I think that's, you're absolutely right. Well, I think you do an admirable job of not uh, stereotyping your, I'll call them opponents, or, you know, people who have a different view than you. You have a very charitable attitude to everybody that's involved in this conversation. I think that that is going to take you far. And um, we talked a good bit today, but there's still more to talk about with regard to your book. Would you be willing to come on and do a second episode to to kind of round out at, at least the topics that you're getting at in your book? I'd be more than happy to. All right. Well, we will we will plan on, on doing that. And uh, do you know, as of yet, when the book is officially going to be released? Um, like the end, it is coming soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so um, it should be out. It was going to actually already be out, but the problem was, of course, financing the book, right? Like um, right here, I'm sitting in my dorm with all my theology books around me, but you should see four to five days a week, I'm working on rooftops pulling nails, right? So I got the blue collar in me. Um, yeah. So this Friday is when I plan on paying the full sum in total. And after that has been paid uh, in total, then things should be just progressing rather rapidly. We already have gone to distribution. Uh, we already have the cover done, the endorsements are all in, everything. So it's just a matter of financing the book by this Friday. And then uh, within a few weeks or so, the book should be out. Well, that's quite an accomplishment for you to be at this at this point in your in your education and already have a and already have a fantastic book coming out. And I'll look forward to uh, getting together with you again soon and uh, discussing more about what else you have to say in your book. Oh, well, God bless you, David. Thank you for having me. All right, talk to you later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.